following resource is from Welford Baptist Church. All right. Well, good morning again, church. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, as we close out our series, Kingdom Portraits. Matthew 25. Well, what was your, or what is your favorite show to watch as a family? When I was growing up, a favorite around our house was reruns of the classic Little House on the Prairie. So many memorable characters on that show, right? From the diabolically vicious Nellie to the family friend Mr. Edwards to, of course, Pa Ingalls, played by the great Michael Landon, who was basically America's dad, right? But you know, as much as we enjoyed watching the show, pretending like we lived on the, 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 the wild frontier, y'all, there were some crazy, intense episodes for a show that was considered a family drama. Like from Ma attempting to chop off her own leg after she gets an infection, to people burning alive when a school catches on fire, to a morphine addiction, to children getting kidnapped, to like the whole town dying from typhus, to that time they all blew up their houses with dynamite to keep them from being sold to a predatory real estate tycoon. I mean, y'all, that'll mess a kid up. But there was, there was a string of episode that was particularly disturbing to my psyche. You'll remember the series centered around Laura Ingalls, but she had an older sister named Mary. And in like the fourth season of the show, Mary comes down with scarlet fever and nearly dies. But it turns out that even though she survives, she had such a severe case that it affected her vision. And slowly but surely, Mary goes completely blind. I remember watching this and freaking out thinking, that can happen? Like, what in the world, right? And then I became completely paranoid that it was going to happen to me. Like, we're sitting around the dining room table eating, and I'm just looking around the room, and I'm like, is it getting dimmer in here? Is the darkness closing in? Like, I was totally freaking me out. Thankfully, even though while I've, as I've shared before, I'm very much in need of corrective vision, I never did lose my sight. But this actually did happen to one of the world's greatest poets, one of my favorite poets, John Milton, most famous for his epic poem, Paradise Lost, which has some whack theology, but is one of the greatest pieces of literature in the English language. But he was also a brilliant scholar, fluent in at least six languages, and he was a prolific writer, not only of literature and poetry, but also in areas like philosophy. He was also heavily involved in the politics of his day and served as the Secretary of Foreign Tongues at one point. But in the middle of his life, his eyes began to fail him. Many believe it was from glaucoma, but regardless, it caused him to completely lose his vision by the time he was 42 years old. But in those days, when he saw that his vision was waning, he began to reflect on the stewardship of his life, how well he had lived his life thus far. And he began to wonder what he could now contribute to the world now that he was going blind. And out of this, he composed one of the most beautiful poems ever written. Listen to this. He said, When I consider how my light is spent, ere half my days in this dark world and wide, and that one talent which is death to hide, lodged with me useless. Though my soul more bent to serve therewith my maker and present my true account, lest he returning chide. Doth God exact day labor when light is denied? I finally ask, but patience to prevent that murmur soon replies, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts. Who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. 
His state is kingly, thousands at his bidding speed, and posts or land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and wait. See, Milton knew God didn't need him. God didn't need his gifts or talents to accomplish his will. So he knew he could trust the Lord through this trial and wait on him, confident that God would sustain him and equip him to serve whatever purpose he had for him. But still, Milton sensed the urgency of the moment. He says, there are only so many days I have left to see. How am I maximizing my days of vision? How am I stewarding them wisely to make an impact on this world and to glorify the one who gave me sight. Now, hopefully you'll never be left wondering how many days of vision that you have left before you experience sightless darkness. But listen, all of us only have so many hours and so many days on this earth. Have you ever stopped to wonder, what am I doing with my life? Have you ever taken the time to calculate how many days you've squandered, how many relationships you've taken for granted, how little attention you paid to the little things? What would you do today if you knew it was your last day on earth? Because it just might be. It's with this sense of urgency that Jesus tells us this last kingdom parable in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 25, starting in verse 14, it says this, For it will be, that is the kingdom, the kingdom will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward and said, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went And hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
So we have here the story of a master going away and entrusting various amounts of money with different servants. This would have been common back then. We often think of servants as being lowly, as the bottom tier of society. But back then, many servants were given weighty responsibility and entrusted with the master's most prized possessions. They would run his estate. They would manage his affairs. They were acting as stewards. In other words, some had full access to the master's goods, enjoying some of their benefits, even though they did not own them. And here we see the master gathering his servants before he leaves, and he gives to one five talents, one two talents, and to one one talent. In case you haven't figured it out yet, with the talent here, we're not talking about like a skill or a superpower, okay? The master isn't playing the role of fairy godmother here saying like, okay, you are going to have the gift of super shooting accuracy, and you're going to have the gift of superhuman strength, and you get x-ray vision. No, a a talent back then was not a, 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 um, talking about a giftedness. It was talking about a form of currency. So we see the three servants are getting different amounts of money, and it's not because the master is playing favorites. It says he gave to each one how? According to his ability. In other words, he says, this guy's been working for me for a while. I've seen evidence that he has been faithful in small things, so I know I can trust him with even bigger things. He's shown himself to be wise in the stewardship of my money, so I'm confident I can trust him with five talents. This other guy, though, might not be ready to handle that amount of money for some reason, so I will only give him one talent. But in case, in case you feel sorry for the guy who only got the one talent, listen, we're not talking about nickels and dimes here. Even one talent was a crazy amount of money to be trusted with. The average worker back then would only make the equivalent of two talents his entire lifetime. His entire lifetime, two talents. So even the servant entrusted with the least amount of money here in the parable was still given half a lifetime's worth of income. And in the same way, Jesus is saying that God has entrusted each of us with much. He's wired each of us in unique ways. Think of all the different personalities in this room He's made some of us super outgoing and movers and shakers. He's made some of us highly relational and attentive to others. He's made some of us highly contemplative and detail-oriented. He's made some of us more efficient and eager to help. And aren't you thankful that we are all different? First of all, wouldn't it be boring if we were all the same? But second, we know that there are strengths and there are weaknesses with each of these personalities. We need one another to balance each other out. So take the classic example of throwing a party, planning a party. You need that person that is always the person to take the initiative. Guys, we need to have a party, right? You need someone to do that. You also need somebody to step in and say, okay, if we're going to have a party, we need a plan. Here's what's going down. Let me take care of some of the details. And then you need someone who say, man, I'd love to run the party. I'm not, I might not be the best at planning a party, but if you need help like on the night of the party, running different things, I'm happy to do that. But you all know that it ain't a good party unless you have people that show up that say, I am the party. Where I go, the party goes, right? Okay? You need people like that to have a good party. Did you know it's no accident that God has wired you with, certain, with a certain personality? Now, I'm not talking about your sinful tendencies. That's a product of the fall, and that's on you, okay? But I'm talking about your particular bent as a human being. It's not an accident that you tend to be more quiet. That might make you more reflective and in touch with others' feelings. It's not an accident that you tend to be more vivacious and bring joy with you when you walk in the room. It's not 
an accident that you're a go-getter. God made you that way for his glory and the good of others. The question is, are you being a good steward of that personality, reflecting his goodness in the world? Listen, on top of that, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've got the Holy Spirit in you, which means you've got at least one spiritual gift, because that's what the Holy Spirit supplies to his people. God was very intentional about what gift or what gifts he gave you, it's not, it's, and it's to help to build up the church and to advance his kingdom. So are you using the gifts he's given you for that purpose? He's also given you various life experiences. Listen, it's no accident that you've gone through what you've gone through. Whether it's good or it's bad, the Bible says he's using it all for your good. And he wants to use what you've been through for the good of others. For example, 1 Corinthians 1.4 says, God comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort that we ourselves are comforted by God. God has given you these life experiences because he wants you to be a blessing to others and help them through their lives. He's also given you resources, some more than others. Some of y'all are like that one servant, like, I wish he would give me more resources, right? But listen, God's given all of us stuff. He's given us money. He's given us a home. He's given us a car. He's given us many other things. And listen, it doesn't belong to you. Just like the servants in this parable, you are not the owner. You are a steward. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That means your stuff is actually his stuff that he's entrusted to you for his purposes. He's also given you influence. John Maxwell once said that everyone is a leader because everyone has influence over someone. Listen, your children, your employees, your team, your friends, students, your younger siblings, your underclassmen at your school. Man, somebody looks up to you and is following your lead. Listen, God has entrusted each of us with so much, and he has done this for the advancement of his kingdom. And what we do with what we've been entrusted with reveals where our heart truly is. Because as we've seen in this parable, some of us are going to be wise in our stewardship, over what has given us, showing that we are genuine in our pursuit of God, and some of us are going to be foolish, showing that we are only pretending to follow Jesus. And in this parable, we see three things that distinguish a genuine disciple from a fake disciple. And the first one is this. A true disciple is eager to do his master's work. A true disciple is eager to do his master's work. Notice how the wise servants respond when they've been entrusted with the master's money. It says they act at once. They didn't even hesitate. They didn't think, well, I'll do that later. I've got some time. The master's going to be away for a while. No, it says at once they got to work. First of all, because they obviously had respect for their master. But second, even though the master ended up being gone for a long time, just like with the maidens that we saw in last week's parable, they didn't know the hour or the day of their master's return. So they hightailed it, right? They immediately began investing what had been entrusted to them. Oh, but not the wicked servant. How does he respond to the master's uh, charge? He's entrusted with a crazy sum of money. And what does he do? He just buries it in the ground. 
Now, to be fair, we might think that that's crazy today, but that was common back then. Most people didn't have access to banks, and so they'd have a stash of cash in a secret hole somewhere, kind of like we saw in the parable of the hidden treasure. But the wicked servant doesn't hide the money to be prudent. What does the passage say the reason for his behavior is? It says he is slothful. He is lazy. He is fearful. He was given money to make money, but he just, he's just been sitting on his tail the whole time. And day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, at no point did he give any thought to how he could invest it, how he could use it for the good of his master. It's like, why are you even here, bro? What good are you to your master? Some of y'all have worked with people like that, right? You're like, I'm not even sure what this guy does, right? How has he not gotten fired? Young people, let me tell you something. If you, in the job market today, if you'll just show up on time, do some quality work, be respectful to people, man, you're going to stand head and shoulders above everybody else, right? Mike, uh, Mike Stokes, our, our music minister, man, he, he was talking about this the other day. He said, that's what I tell young people, right? If you just show up on time, if you, if you do quality work, if you're respectful to your peers, man, you are going to be head and shoulders above everybody else. But look at, all, look, at, look at what else is going on here. The guy that got the one talent is probably only thinking, I only got one talent. whoop de doo You know, I often people, hear people say that about their job. They're like, it's not exactly what I want to do, right? But listen, if you give your all to that position, you're going to stand out. And you won't be in that position long. But there's a reason we see in this parable why this guy was only entrusted with one talent. And it becomes clear he didn't even deserve the one talent. Jesus is saying in the same way, those who are truly in the kingdom will be eager to do their father's business. But he warns us, many will behave more like the wicked servant than the wise servant. And isn't that the case for many professing believers today? Everybody wants to receive but nobody wants the responsibility. I think if we're honest, this is how many of us treat our relationship with God. I mean, we got really emotional one Sunday morning. We felt bad about our sin. We were a little scared of burning forever in a fiery pit. And so we prayed a prayer. We felt a little better, and we thought, glad I got that taken care of. I don't need to worry about that anymore. And we just go about our business, just sitting around waiting for Jesus to come back. But friends, that's not how it works. Jesus didn't save you so you could coast through your life, doing your thing, and then expecting his blessing. No, when he saved you, he had a purpose for you. He was to use your life for his glory and for the good of those around you. He saved you that others might be saved. He blessed you that you might be a blessing to others. He did not invite you into the kingdom so you could loaf around all day. He invited you in so he could send you out to bring others in. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is the Father's business. This is what we were charged to do. The last commandment Jesus gave us was to go into all the world and do what? Make disciples. Lead others to know him. Bring others to salvation in Christ. 
So if we're not doing this, if we're not using what has been entrusted to us to advance his kingdom, then the Bible says that we are the foolish servant. But worse than being the fool, it says that we are worthless, squandering the good gifts that God has given us. But even worse than that, it says we are wicked. Which leads to the question, if this is our attitude, are we really in the kingdom? Because what happens to the wicked servant in this parable? He's cast out into darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, friends, the point of the parable this morning is not just be a better servant. No, the point of the parable is if you're not about the master's business, you're not really his servant. But wait! Salvation is by grace through faith, not by works, right? Yes and amen! We're sinners by nature, incapable of doing anything good. We wouldn't even have sought God had he not come to us and changed our hearts with the power of the Holy Spirit and through the proclamation of his word. In our own power, we would never work hard enough. We could never be good enough. We can't earn our salvation. It is a gift to be received. So there you say, sounds like permission to coast to me. I've got my fire insurance right, so I'm ready to go. As long as I'm getting heaven, I'm happy. But listen, if that's your attitude, I'm not sure it's heaven that where you're headed. Because no sooner are we told in Scripture, for by grace you have been saved through faith, this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. We are then told this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You were saved for what? For good works. And what are you told to do? To walk in them. That's why in Colossians 1.10, after Paul speaks of being filled with the knowledge of God's will, he says that our response should be this, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Indeed, as we saw throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told us that it is by our fruit that we will know if we are truly his disciples. Why? Because transformed hearts result in transformed lives. We're no longer about our business. We're about his. We're no longer seeking to advance our kingdom. We're seeking to advance his. We no longer live for our will. We live for his will. The true disciple is eager to do his father's business. But notice another evidence of a true disciple. Number two, a true disciple is willing to take great risks. A true disciple is willing to take great risks. In order to do anything great in life, a risk needs to be taken. But the foolish servant took a crazy amount of money and simply buried it in the ground. Now listen, I'm no genius, but what good comes from money that's six feet under? Absolutely nothing. You've heard the expression, you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? Well, it's like you can't hold on to all that money, or you can hold on to all that money, but what good is the money doing if it's just sitting there? Meanwhile, the two wise servants invested their money in some capacity. Now, obviously, they made very wise business decisions, but anytime you put your money to work, you take a risk. Even the best business decisions can fall to pieces, but they could have played it safe. They could have gone the safe route. The one who was entrusted, or the one was entrusted with a lifetime of money, another with, a, with two and a half lifetimes of money. But that's not why the master gave them the money. 
He gave them the money for a return. This was seed money that was expected to yield some fruit. The master didn't want them to play it safe. He wanted them to play it wise. Yes, he didn't want them to be reckless. He wanted them to have a plan. He wanted them to think it through. He wanted them to make sound business decisions. But listen, he did not want them to play it safe. But you know, I think we often do play it safe in the church today, don't we? In fact, isn't that one of the main things that we pray for? Keep us safe, Lord. Not that there's anything wrong with asking for God's protection. People do that throughout the Bible. But notice, any prayer for safety and protection in the Bible is not so that we can live posh, comfortable lives free of suffering. It's asking for God's protection as we seek to be about God's business. Take Psalm 91, for instance. It says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress. Now, when do you need a fortress? When you're in battle, right? I need a fortress. You are my God in whom I trust. He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Or one of the most beloved psalms in the Bible, Psalm 23. What does he say? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Y'all, this is not the hills are alive with the sound of music. The shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my what? My enemies, I'm in the thick of battle. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you see what's going on here? These types of prayer for protection don't come out of a place of safety. Like, God, I'm so comfortable on my luxury couch watching my big screen TV in my air-conditioned home with its white picket fence. God, please preserve this posh, bougie life for me. That's not the prayer. The prayer is, God, I'm out here trying to live for you. I'm invading enemy territory. I'm advancing your kingdom. So God, as I go, protect me. Be with me. See, church, we were never meant to play it safe in our homes, in our churches. God is always calling us out, out of our comfort zone, out of our best laid plans, out of our will, and into the land that he will show us, out of the world of darkness to take his light, out onto the battlefield filled with arrows and traps and snares, but going without fear because we know that if God is with us, who can stand against us? See, that's the irony here. We think that following God is risky, and it certainly feels that way. But listen, if you are in the will of God, what risk is there truly? Because we serve a God who loves you, who cares for you, who watches over you, who is sovereign over everything that happens to you, so that even if something bad happens to you, even then, God will work it for good. Listen, the worst thing that can happen to you is you die. But that's just the beginning of eternal life with eternal joy. 
So why would you want to play it safe when you know where playing it safe is going to land you? Where does it land this wicked servant? Into the pit of destruction. Again, do you see the irony? Playing it safe makes us put ourselves in the most unsafe position. Why? Because we're showing our hope is not in the Lord. Our trust is not in the Lord. And so the result is we are cut off from him. But not only that, by playing it safe, we are preventing others from knowing true safety because we are keeping them from knowing the Lord. A few years back, David Platt gave a sermon to some seminary students. He pointed this out. He said, there are 2.8 billion people in the world who, if nothing changes, will go to hell. There's real eternal wrath awaiting sinners before a holy God. God is going to consume them forever and ever. And these people have never even heard the good news of how they can go to heaven. So what does he say our response should be? Our response should be, he says, it makes sense to take risks to get the gospel to them. Why? Because we're secure. We know who holds our future. We know where our eternity lies. So why would we play it safe when there are many people out there who are perishing? We need to go to them. He acknowledged that going to such places and taking such risks may seem daunting, maybe even terrifying. Nevertheless, he said this, when you know that Jesus has risen from the dead, then no matter where he leads you, no matter what it costs you, the proclamations of, proclamation of this good news in difficult, dangerous to reach places who haven't heard this good news is the most, listen to this, it is the most enviable life in the world. It's not in vain, he says. Life is not in vain whenever you're doing what the resurrected Christ has told you to do. My friend, I don't know what fears or insecurities or doubts might be holding you back this morning, tempting you to be like the foolish servant who buried his treasure in the ground. But listen to me, God is saying this to you, be wise. Take the resources I have given you. Step out in faith. Use them for the advancement of my kingdom. I will provide. I will direct your steps. I will make a way. I will protect you. Just trust me. Because as scary as taking a risk might be, what's the saying? No risk, no reward. And that's true in the spiritual sense as well. That's why our last point here is this. A true disciple keeps his eyes on the reward. A true disciple keeps his eyes on the reward. Did you notice what happened at the end of the parable? The one who simply sought to preserve his talent ended up losing it. Whereas the one who gave his all to the task gained another talent and was able to enter the joy of his master. Isn't this the scariest thing about a risk? We're terrified about losing something. Indeed, that's why many people avoid even surrendering their life to Jesus in the first place. They think, man, if I follow Jesus, look at all the stuff I have to give up. And you know, that's true in a sense. Following Jesus means turning away from a lot of things, casting off our sin, which might also mean losing other things like relationships, income, things that we enjoy, and that can be hard. But can I let you in on a little secret here? What feels like death actually leads to life. Indeed, Jesus told us, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
Here in this parable, Jesus warns us to everyone who has, who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Friend, why are you clinging to something to bring you security when what you're really doing is losing? By holding on to your life, you're going to lose it, just like the foolish servant in this parable. But if you surrender yourself to the master's will and risk your life for the advancement of his kingdom, the promise is that you will receive great reward. Indeed, Jesus said, yours is the kingdom of heaven. You will inherit the earth. This is the promise to all who are truly his disciples, the true citizens of the kingdom, because those who are truly his will be about his business, even when it's risky, delighting in the reward of knowing him and making him known. But as we've seen over and over, this is not something we can do in our own power. Left to ourselves, we would all be like this wicked servant, hoarding what's been entrusted to us rather than using it for the glory of our king and master. But thanks be to God that when that was our heart, he came to give us a new heart. He came to give us his heart. And what was the heart of Jesus? John 4, 34, he said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 5, 30, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Indeed, from his childhood, what did Jesus say he was all about? He said, I must be about my father's business. And because he was about his father's business, he was willing to do the father's will even when it felt risky, even when it came with great danger and personal cost. Indeed, he followed the father's will even to the point of handing himself over to be crucified, suffering a punishment he did not deserve. We did, but he took our place. And why was he willing to do this? Hebrews 12, 2, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. Listen, Jesus was willing to take on the cross because his eyes were fixed on the reward to come from doing the Father's will. And what was the Father's will? John 6, 40, he said, this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Listen, to his own detriment, Jesus eagerly did the will of the the Father, bearing God's wrath for our sin and shame to gain the eternal reward of rescuing sinners like you and like me into eternal life. I mean, how could you not want that, church? How could you not want to be like Christ in this, delighting and pleasing your Father, denying yourself for the good of others, fixing your eyes on that eternal reward. My friend, this is what you were created and what you were saved for. And this is the basis for how your life will be judged on that last day. Will you hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant? Or will you hear, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness? Church, I don't know about you, but I know what words I want to hear on that day. 
So how are you spending your days? How are you allocating your resources? How are you maximizing your gifts and your influence, not for the advancement of your kingdom, but his? Missionary C.T. Studd once put it this way, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I believe the student ministry has this hanging in their, their area. I love that. I love that that quote is before our students. This is what our lives are about. Because the master is returning. So will he find you faithful or slothful, wise or foolish, reflecting the righteousness of his son or continuing in the pattern of this world? Because the master is returning. Are you ready? How are you spending your life? How are you spending your light? How are you utilizing the resources God has given you to make much of Jesus and to advance his kingdom? Will you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about our church, visit welfarechurch.org. Blessings.